I'm Carlo Pignataro, and you are listening to a new episode of Lux and Friends. Our journey in the world of NFTs continues, and in today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Si Yang Kim, the author of the book NFTs for Dummies. Si Yang Kim is an associate professor of finance and business analytics at Santa Clara University Levy School of Business, where she teaches financial markets, financial engineering, and fintech. As the financial markets are plummeting all over the world, and the crypto and blockchain sectors make no exception, Professor Kim's expertise in innovative financial instruments will help you gain some clarity. Listening to this episode of Lux and Friends, you learn that to understand NFTs, you have to, first and foremost, understand cryptocurrencies and the mother of them all, Bitcoin. You will also gain a perspective to see beyond digital art. You'll learn that NFTs are contract on top of a ledger, public and sometimes decentralized. If these words sound too technical and perhaps boring to you, beware, for they are revolutionary. So young, I'm so happy to see you and thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Carlo. So uh, the first question that came to mind when inviting you to discuss uh, NFTs was, and, I, and as I was preparing for this interview, you are a professor of finance at the Santa Clara University. So what prompted you to write an entire book on NFTs, titled NFTs for Dummies, uh, uh, given the fact that NFTs are not strictly a financial product? Um, That's a great question. And I view myself as specializing in innovative asset classes. And for a while, early on, that was a small segment called structured finance, which sits between financial engineering and fixed income. Um, So I I like to think of specializing in what's innovative at the time, but yet is abused, misused, and then misunderstood. And that also happened with all of these collateralized debt obligations that I was working on. Um, So then fast forward to things that are innovative, new, abused, misused, and also misunderstood. Now that's crypto and NFTs fall into that category. (laughs) <laughs> Certainly, they are misused and misunderstood. And in order to set the record straight and to explain in details what NFTs are for our audience to understand them once and for all, um, when we had our initial preliminary conversation, you told me, and I fully agree with you, that you cannot understand NFTs if you don't grasp what cryptocurrencies are to start from, and particularly uh, Bitcoin. Isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, And it does all start with Bitcoin, because this all comes from a disintermediated, decentralized method of record keeping. And the question is, what are you keeping a record of? So with standard cryptocurrency, with Bitcoin, it was keeping a record of something that hopefully would become a medium of exchange. And then people went on to create utility tokens. Some people actually used this ledger to create tokenized securities. Um, But really, it all comes down to this method of record keeping and what it is that you'll keep a record of. 
And that's where the value of something is coming from. And so NFTs are now a non-fungible token that's using the same type of record keeping system, but now you're keeping record of non-fungible items rather than fungible items. What's the difference between a fungible item and a non-fungible item? So with fungible items, you can think of US dollar bills where you wouldn't care if I gave you one $5 bill versus another $5 bill. Um, both satisfy the same services and same obligations. So as long as it's the right quantity, you really don't care which dollar bills you receive. Whereas with non-fungible items, NFTs, this is representing something that you really care whether you get one concert ticket versus another, because one concert ticket might be in the front row, but the other might be in the back. So these items are non-fungible. You really can't just trade the same quantity and feel like it has fulfilled the exact same obligations and services. That's right. And you mentioned a use case, for example, concert ticket. While most people thinking of NFTs still think of JPEG files, digital art, or let's say images of uh, uh, bags, uh, items that they could have in the real life. Um, Shall we uh, share with our audience a brief history of this uh, uh, recent phenomenon, which is NFTs? Oh, absolutely. So it started with CryptoKitties. This was back in 2017, and it started on the, the Ethereum blockchain and became the, the standard for all ERC721 tokens, which are the non-fungible token standard for all of these NFTs that are being minted and tracked on the Ethereum blockchain. So now the idea behind something like CryptoKitties, distinct from the idea of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin was more like the US dollar example. You don't care which Bitcoin you get, you just care that you get the right quantity. Whereas with the CryptoKitties, you care which CryptoKitty you get because it's as though you care about which Beanie Baby you get. Each Beanie Baby is distinct and separate. Um, or you care about which specific baseball card you get. So this started this era of digital collectibles. But the notion that you own the JPEG, uh, the, the way that it's being implemented right now, and it started with digital collectibles, and that doesn't mean that's where NFTs have to go, and that's where it has to end. It was just an easy, fun way to get started. And so with these digital collectibles, though, you don't actually own that digital image of the CryptoKitty or the Mutant Ape Yacht Club. The image that you see is not what you own through the NFT. The NFT itself simply is a record. And the question is, what are you keeping a record of? And in this case, it's not a record of ownership of a car. It's not a record of ownership of a painting. It really is just memorializing that you are linked to a particular token ID, but it's not really linking you to ownership of some actual physical item or even digital item. So what do you own in the end, if anything? Um, it, it really depends because we are used in modern society, we are very acclimated to separating our digital ownership records from the physical item. So if you think of a car, we are very used to the fact that we have physical possession of the car, but that doesn't mean that we actually own the car or we have the legal right to access it. So we have digital records that show who is the actual proper owner, who has the proper legal access to the car in any given moment. But now that particular digital record is designed to track ownership of the car or the digital record that's tracking ownership of property. That's designed to track ownership of houses. 
Now, in the case of, let's say, Mutant Ape Yacht Club, you don't own the digital JPEG. It, it is sort of like you are part of a club, though. You're part of a social club. And some of these NFTs, um, they will end up having social gatherings and events at different NFT and cryptocurrency conferences. You'll get different types of airdrops simply by dint of owning one of the NFTs. Um, and then the idea is some of these um, NFT creators are providing other types of goods and services that they're adding on to their platforms. Like with Mutant Ape Yacht Club, apparently at some point, possibly even now, I haven't checked, but you're supposed to be able to create a band with your mutant apes. And you can also have badges that on Instagram or Twitter that can be linked to actually verify that you are linked to that particular token ID. So it is giving you an identity in part of a club, but it's not giving you actual physical it's not giving you any sort of legal rights as of yet, but that doesn't mean that that's where NFTs have to end, much like other digital records give us legal rights to things that, you know, where we separated the digital ownership record from the physical good itself. So going back to the board Yappy example, uh, what differentiates it from a club membership? It is different in that when Board Ape Yacht Club first came out, and then they issued their Mutant Ape Yacht Club. With a club membership, usually people are looking at some terms of membership that they're purchasing. So if it's a golf club or if it's a social club, you are told that if you purchase membership, then you will be able to use the facilities. You'll be able to, you'll, you'll have certain privileges. Whereas with CryptoKitties and with this Board Ape Yacht Club, there wasn't anything that was explicitly promised in terms of saying that you have use of facilities or you have use of something, but people became excited about it. They started glomming onto it and then it became worth something. But now the question is, we have too many of these. So I always talk about, you know, after the wake of Bitcoin and after Bitcoin first hit 20,000 at the end of 2017, then we had all these shit coins come out. They were just copying all of these other cryptocurrencies, and there was no reason for us to have that many of them. And then the same thing has happened with NFTs. So it is making people move away from and forget that this really is just a method of record keeping, but it is a very innovative method of record keeping. And so where would we want more value-adding and elegant use cases of that? We don't want to forget that those can still be there, despite the fact that right now it's not being used in its most elegant and valuable form. That makes sense to me. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Ethereum as the blockchain where most NFTs uh, uh, take place today. Is it the only blockchain that facilitates the creation and, uh, and uh, exchange of, uh, of NFTs or there are possibly others? It isn't the only one. And actually Bitcoin started off, um, if, you, if you Google stuff like colored coins, there were NFTs minted on the Bitcoin blockchain, but Bitcoin was not designed to be able to do this easily. And so I liken it to if you have your record keeping on a notepad and someone else is also trying to piggyback off of your notepad file, and then they'll sort of try to squeeze in some of their records into your notepad, but it wasn't designed to do that as opposed to an Excel spreadsheet where you can start one tab and then allow other people into your file and start other tabs within that same file so that you can have separate methods of record keeping. If you think of it that way, Bitcoin, because once people started to accept it as a disintermediated 
but tamper-proof and reliable method of record keeping. Others wanted to put their ledgers on top of the Bitcoin ledger, but it was clunky and it wasn't designed for that. So Ethereum came out and now Ethereum specifically was designed for you to be able to carve out pieces of it to create your ledger on top of a decentralized, disintermediated ledger that people trust and is tamper-proof while being completely apart from any sort of central intermediary. So once Ethereum came out with that, now other smart contract platforms have come in its wake. Ethereum is still by far the predominant one, but now we have many more that are serious contenders, whereas five years ago, they were not serious contenders. Um, so right now, for example, Flowchain, that's one that I'm excited about and that I would actually bother to, to learn how to develop things on because one concern is after you've learned how to do things on the Ethereum blockchain, are you going to waste time learning about Cardano or learning how to deploy things on EOS? You don't know if it'll have the appropriate traction. And Flowchain, despite being new, because Dapper Labs, Dapper Labs is the one that's responsible for CryptoKitties. And so Dapper Labs now has NBA Top Shots. They signed something with the NFL. They have these UFC-based NFTs coming out. And they've put NBA Top Shots, and those subsequent NFTs will also come out on the flow chain. So that means they have some serious game. And NBA Top Shots is something that has over a billion dollars in sales and over a very short period of time. So for them to, to trust and say that they're going to do it on that platform kind of gives me faith that that one will have some amount of longevity and is worth learning. Very interesting. What are the marketplaces? Where can our viewers and listeners go to start exchanging, buying, and perhaps creating uh, NFTs? The easiest one I'd say is OpenSea. So it's spelled open and C as in S-E-A, like the water. So OpenSea is a platform where either if you are a more, if you're more in tune with how to develop these smart contract accounts, then you can launch your smart contract code directly with OpenSea. Or if you don't know how to do these things at all, you simply upload a JPEG and OpenSea is designed to mint your NFT for you. So they have backend code that will just automatically run a very simple smart contract for you. And then you'll be up and running with an ERC-721 compliant token and have your NFT linked to some sort of JPEG or whatever it is that you wanted. Um, Rarables is another platform that does something very easily as well. So those would probably be the two biggest ones right now that are very user-friendly and have a lot of volume and activity without also being exclusive in the sense that there are now also NFT platforms and marketplaces where you have to either be invited or you have to apply because they want to build an artist community. Yeah. So if you think the next generation of where NFTs might go is... Perhaps we wouldn't be arguing about whether a famous painting or, a, or a, a particular chair in a museum is authentic if there had been an NFT that is memorializing provenance of that item since the beginning of when that item was created. And we know that a lot of artists famously were starving artists during their time, and then they become renowned after their deaths. And so if you fancy yourself potentially one of those artists, then perhaps you join one of these communities and issue an NFT with your art. And anytime you give it to a friend or a family member, insist that they pass the NFT to the next person that they pass that artwork to. So that in 500 years, people aren't arguing as much about whether this is an authentic Carlo Pignataro. 
<laughs> but how do we know that in 500 years, the ledger, the blockchain, the market where we bought the NFT is still going to be there? I mean, one of the questions that I've that I that I'm asked more often when I discuss the topic, and, and then I've asked myself many times before reading your book, is what happens if I buy a, a, an NFT on OpenSea and and, and uh, OpenSea shuts down? If OpenSea shuts down, that is a centralized marketplace that is allowing these trades to happen. So it doesn't really matter because your NFT. That is a record that is memorialized on whatever public blockchain it was minted on. So most of them right now, as I said, are on the Ethereum blockchain. So it would be as though even if, let's say, what would be a good example of this? If I had stored a bunch of my grading records somewhere centrally, um, and then that thing burns down, then everyone has to worry that oh no, did she submit the grades before the central grading record burned down? Because then how are we going to figure it out? Whereas if it's distributed and kept on everybody's computers, if replicated copies are on all participating computers, then we know that that record keeping system is something that's apart and distinct from the marketplace. So if OpenSea shut down, much like how marketplaces have come and gone in the past, those underlying records are not part of OpenSea itself. OpenSea is facilitating the transfer of ownership so that OpenSea is giving a marketplace where people can transfer their ownership of one NFT to another. But that inherent, that record keeping system is not on OpenSea. That itself is still on the Ethereum blockchain. Does that mean that uh, when we make any sort of uh, crypto transaction, we have to understand what happens on chain and off chain? Yes. And so that's a very good point in terms of with these centralized crypto exchanges, what can happen is you gain a critical mass of users and then someone might pretend to die or actually die. And then the keys are gone and no one knows how to access any of that crypto wealth. And the people that had moved their crypto onto that central exchange, they now have no recourse because no one has access to those private keys. So that is a legitimate concern when it comes to any central authority that's going to hold on to everything. Um, I would liken that, though, in the same way that with your broker, we trust Fidelity, we trust Charles Schwab, but our stocks are being held in street name because as small players, for us, it doesn't make sense that if I buy 100 shares of Microsoft stock, why should we call the transfer agent at Microsoft? have them issue directly to me those 100 shares, those stock certificates. And then when I want to sell them, now Fidelity needs to find those specific certificates, call the transfer agent again, then reissue it to another person. So Fidelity decides, why don't I just hold all these stock certificates in street name? So Fidelity is holding it all in their name. So we are oftentimes very used to trusting intermediaries to do those things for us. And the fact that they've been around for a long time doesn't guarantee that they'll continue to be around, which we learned in 2008 with Bear Stearns and Lehman just suddenly collapsing. But with crypto, I guess the irony is that as we go through this DeFi, CeFi, DeFi cycle, we keep relearning why we're not good at being our own banks. And that's how these centralized exchanges and these vaults pop up, because we're not good at being our own banks. And we hate waiting 
for all the, 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 the mechanisms are not very, are not very user-friendly and the wait times are not very great, especially if you're transacting directly on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so now we go back to these central intermediaries because it's easier and faster. So we are not good at being our own bank. However, there was the Bitcoin conference in Miami this week. And uh, one of the, uh, um, let's say, late motifs, uh, so to say it in English, in, in French, is that uh, you should keep your Bitcoin in a cold storage, not your keys, not your coin. Would you recommend to keep cryptos and uh, NFTs uh, in, a, in, a in a private ledger, in a cold storage, rather than, let's say, a hot wallet or... Or, or an exchange? I wouldn't trust myself if it were a considerable amount of wealth. Um, and I'm hard pressed to think that if the Winklevoss twins don't trust themselves to do this, then if someone has a considerable amount of wealth, other than, you know, just a few coins here and there, it seems very risky. It is a very risky value proposition to do because you could lose it. Um, even with your cold storage, you need to store the, the private key to that cold storage ledger. So then the question is, where are you going to store the private key? So if you create a paper wallet, where are you going to put that paper wallet so that it doesn't suffer water damage, fire damage, theft? Um, and then how are you going to make sure that you don't lose it? So there are a lot of things that can go, go wrong in that scenario, because if you lose it, there isn't someone to call. There isn't a customer service as though you lost your credit card or your debit card or you lost your password to your online banking system. I agree with you. It's ironic because as we pursue decentralization, we also rediscover the importance of a certain level of centralization. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea with crypto, again, was it is nice for certain things to be decentralized if there's inherent mistrust, or even if you just wanted a simple political statement, But other than that, I mean, to store vast amounts of wealth, to be our own banks, we've already realized long ago that it is quite dangerous even to be our own bank. Someone might catch on that you're being your own bank. And so it's not something that has been a very, there are reasons that intermediaries popped up and that we keep relearning why they popped up. Although in some instances, decentralization has been, has been great. And then in other cases, I just... As of right now, I can't imagine how someone would want to keep the vast amount of what would be their retirement wealth yeah. in a way that they don't have a trusted central intermediary if they're part of a developed country. Yeah, I guess that the fact that billions of people are still unbanked uh, makes a case for decentralization. Yeah. Oh, and absolutely, because far more people have access to a smartphone and have access to the Internet than they have access to a bank. Indeed. So the, the percentage of people with access to the internet via smartphone is greater than the percentage of people that have access to reliable banking. So it does make sense. Um, but again, it depends on if your country had a very disorganized and non-unreliable method of record keeping, then you do want to go with something else, right? Something like Bitcoin, Ethereum. Even in cases where your country may be organized, there may be pockets that are very inefficient within your country. And so you decide it might be better to just carve out a ledger on the Ethereum blockchain. 
Um, and it is democratizing things for small players who otherwise wouldn't have the capability to build out that type of record keeping system in house in the way that FedEx is able to do this with checkpoints. And they're huge, so they can. But me, as a, as a small private vendor, I wouldn't be able to do something that's reliable that people would trust. I might rather just do it on one of these public blockchains. Yes. So, Young, before I, I say grazie mille in my native Italian for this very interesting conversation, there's one last question I'd like to ask you. Um, you know the podcast is titled Lux and Friends, and Lux stands for luxury, the industry I come from, and many listeners and viewers also work in. Um, NFTs are increasingly and extremely popular in, this in, in, the, in the industry as we speak today, although I sense not everybody really understands what they are. Do you think uh, NFTs are worth, are worth the hype in luxury? And what future do you see for the industry in the adoption uh, of NFTs? I think it can be. I, I mean, a lot of crypto is about doing very... Because there's so much quick money that was in crypto, a lot of it is about having diamond hands and doing lots of fantastic things and having burning ceremonies and being very, very frivolous, right? And we have seen some of the famous use cases where digital art is being NFTized. So I'd say absolutely, um, this is something where you have these million dollar NFTs, even if some of them are questionable as to whether or not they, they truly were sold for a million dollars. We do know that there's this fantastic arena. Um, there are even these yats, I'm not sure if you've heard of those, where you pick a string of emojis And then you can NFTize that, and then that can be your string of emojis. And so to be able to have something that's iconic um, and also expensive, I think it's very much like the world of high fashion, right? You want something iconic, it's expensive, and it's recognizable. And this, even though I could print screen and copy paste any crypto kitty I want, or print screen, copy paste any mutant ape yacht club, it wouldn't really be mine. Much like in high fashion, if you just carry a counterfeit handbag, that's not the same thing as being part of that. So I do see this being an exciting, fantastic area for Lux and friends. Fantastic. And, uh, and, and, and it's funny because technology changes, but the underlying reasons why people do things are always the same. We're always human. I think so. You, you want things that are exclusive. Yeah. You want things that are cool. And then if Snoop Dogg does it, then suddenly the NFT plots around, you know, Snoop Dogg's land become more expensive. What a strange world we live in. Uh, so Young Kim, thank you for being on Lux and Friends. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Carlo. 